It is Friday, May 1st, 2020, and you are listening to the podcast edition of New Mexico in Focus. For this week, I am your host, Kevin McDonald, executive producer here at New Mexico PBS. We appreciate you listening in as always and for subscribing and downloading the episodes. Encourage you to encourage others to get on board the New Mexico in Focus podcast train as well. Another busy week here at New Mexico in Focus for sure as we continue gathering information virtually for the show on a variety of topics. And up first out of the gate this week is a conversation all about vaccines. It's an important conversation as the state considers ways to start phasing in a reopening of the state. But we know no true return to normalcy can really come about until we have working vaccine for COVID-19. And there are some folks at the University of New Mexico here in Albuquerque that are working on that very issue right now, namely in the uh, molecular genetics and micro, uh, microbiology department at UNM, where they are working on the vaccine. We first talked to some of the folks you're going to hear from today uh, several months ago about progress towards a vaccine for Alzheimer's disease. Very exciting research there. And wanted to find out from them more about what it takes to develop and test a vaccine for a virus like COVID-19. A lot of great information here, uh, including how long we can expect before a vaccine comes into play, how the testing is working, and how this is something that uh, scientists have actually been preparing for for a long time. We've narrowly missed some outbreaks like this when you think back to the SARS or the H1N1 outbreaks of several years ago. It's something they've known has been a possibility, and a lot of the work they have done around that will hopefully mean a faster resolution and discovery of a vaccine for COVID-19. Right now, let's turn this over to correspondent Megan Kamrick for more. Joining me today are three University of New Mexico researchers working on a vaccine against the coronavirus. Professor Bryce Chikarian, Vice Chair, Department of Molecular Genetics and Microbiology. Professor David Peabody, Department of Molecular Genetics and Microbiology. And Stephen Bradfute, Assistant Professor, Center for Global Health and Internal Medicine. Thank you all for joining us here on the Zoom. Uh, I want to start with you, Stephen. Your lab has a sample of the coronavirus. What kind of work have you been doing so far with that sample that contributes to our understanding of the virus? We've been doing a lot of testing of uh, different uh, uh, therapeutic drugs to see if these uh, drugs can inhibit uh, viral infection of cells. Um, we're also looking at some basic biology of how the virus interacts with the cells that it infects. And then we've also been using this to test uh, different ways to decontaminate personal protective equipment, um, see if it inactivates the virus using you know, different surfaces and disinfectants. Uh, those are the types of assays that we've been running. What kind of work are you doing around a vaccine um, with the virus? Right, so we'll be working with, with Dave and Bryce and we'll be testing the, uh, the, uh, the blood of the vaccinated uh, animals to see if they contain uh, antibodies that can block the ability of the virus to infect cells. And uh, I want to ask either David or Bryce, there are at least 115 vaccine candidates around the world that researchers are working on right now and a variety of approaches. I read an interview in the New York Times 
that the fastest vaccine ever developed was the mumps vaccine, and that took four years. Is that the kind of timeline we're looking at? Bryce, you want to deal with that sure. one? Um, so yeah, that's absolutely true that traditionally it's taken a long time to develop vaccines. Um, but I think, you know, I, I think we're hopeful that uh, developing a vaccine for coronavirus will, will happen much faster. Um, you know, I think it was very exciting that, um, you know, just a few months after the virus that was actually identified, um, there was a, a company from the U.S. that actually was able to put a vaccine into humans. Um, and there have been a few other um, vaccines that have gone into clinical testing um, quickly. And, you know, I think that really reflects um, advances in uh, molecular biology um, that have allowed for the more rapid development of, of different vaccine candidates. Um, and, you know, all of these different vaccines have, you know, some pluses and minuses. Uh, the ones that we're seeing in people right now are the ones that are easy, easiest to develop. Um, but whether those will also be the vaccines that induce the strongest immune responses, um, I think that remains to be seen. Um, it also remains to be seen whether we need very, very strong immune responses in order to get protection against coronavirus. Um, so, you know, there's still a lot of questions about, um, you know, whether these strategies are going to be effective or if they're going to be perfectly effective or just be able to reduce the symptoms of disease. Um, and I think either, either case would be, would be a, a benefit um, to people. Um, but it's kind of an exciting time for vaccine development because of this, you know, the intense problem of coronaviruses, it's really accelerated the, the progress. And I suspect that um, we're going to see a much faster timeline than we've seen historically. Uh, could I, maybe I could just add something yeah, to that. The, the uh, advances in molecular biology and immunology have made it a, dramatically faster to develop vaccine candidates. The, Why is that? Well, because uh, basically the ability to identify an appropriate antigen and to produce it uh, uh, has benefited enormously from, from technological advances, primarily in molecular biology. And, uh, but we still are faced with the relatively long process of clinical trials to ensure that the vaccine is safe and, and effective. And that really has become the overwhelming uh, limitation in terms of how rapidly a vaccine can be produced. Now, I know it's called the novel coronavirus because we haven't seen it before, but uh, we have had a previous, well, many coronaviruses, including the SARS, uh, I can't remember what its number was, but I think you worked on that, David. How does our knowledge of those viruses, or any of you, jump in, help us with trying to develop a vaccine for this one? So the, the uh, the, the SARS virus uh, from the 2000, I think it was 2002 or 2003 from that outbreak, uh, that of course was, uh, I think the first really dangerous coronavirus that we uh, have encountered. And uh, because of, uh, of work done with that coronavirus, we were prepared to some extent uh, for this one in the sense this one turns out to be quite uh, similar in many respects to that one. And so, for example, the vaccine that we're uh, trying to develop is based on knowledge of the human immune response to that original SARS 
uh, and now the one that's called SARS-CoV-2, uh, we're basically targeting similar portions of that virus. Uh, uh, as we know, uh, were uh, components of the uh, immune response to the original uh, SARS, the one that I think now people are calling SARS-CoV-1 probably. And Bryce, you have been on the New Mexico folks before talking about a vaccine you were developing with your colleagues around Alzheimer's. You're using the same kind of platform technology, I think. Can you talk about how you're adapting that for this kind of research? Sure. So, you know, so the, the things that my lab works on is using this um, vaccine platform technology. Um, we use something that's called a, a virus-like particle. Um, or a VLP. And, and basically what that is, is sort of the empty shell uh, of a virus particle. Um, and we work with Dave's lab to, to, to use this um, type of virus called a bacteriophage. Um, so these are viruses that um, are not infectious to people. Um, they normally infect um, bacteria. Um, and uh, the reason that we use these um, these virus-like particles from bacteriophage is that um, we've developed a number of different ways where we can engineer the surface of these particles to display uh, various targets. Um, and so the idea is that we take some antigen, some piece of a virus or another target that we're interested in inducing immune responses against, and then we um, engineer these virus-like particles so that we can display these pieces of that target on the surface of the virus-like particle. And because these particles have a sort of unique geometry, it turns out that the immune system responds to them very, very strongly. And so we can get these very um, strong and targeted immune responses against uh, a whole variety of different targets. And so we've done this with a molecule that's involved in um, the patho uh, pathogenesis of Alzheimer's disease. Um, and in this study, what we're doing, uh, what Dave has done is taken small pieces from, uh, from this novel coronavirus um, and displayed them on the surface of our virus-like particles. So again, the idea is to use this platform to induce very strong targeted responses against parts of the coronavirus that are involved in a critical step in its life cycle. So that's the idea behind this project. In effect, we take a harmless, harmless to humans at least, virus-like particle and, uh, and uh, decorate it with bits and pieces from uh, the coronavirus so that in effect, it masquerades as the coronavirus to the human immune system, but in a way that's entirely harmless to humans. So Can the we... idea is, is to provoke an immune response to the coronavirus by uh, the display of bits and pieces of coronavirus on this harmless virus-like particle. Is part of this work figuring out what pieces of the virus uh, generate the best response? That, uh, yes, that, that's, that's the bulk of what uh, we'll be doing uh, over the next year or so is, uh, is trying to decide what are the most uh, efficacious targets, what are the ones that represent the greatest vulnerability on the part of the virus, and exactly what is the best configuration for us to present them in on our platform. Uh, so optimizing that is, is gonna be uh, uh, the effort of the next um, months at least. And Stephen, where does your work with the actual 
virus in your lab enter, where does that come into this process? Right, so the, uh, uh, Dave and Bryce uh, come up with uh, different vaccine candidates and they'll uh, vaccinate um, animals. And then we take uh, the blood and try to determine which flavor of the vaccine they come up with is the most potent for inhibiting the ability of this virus to enter cells. And then uh, further on down the line, then we can uh, use mice that are uh, carrying a human ACE2 receptor, which is the receptor that uh, the virus binds to. And then we can infect those mice after they've been vaccinated by uh, Bryce and Dave, we can uh, infect them with the virus and see if it stops uh, the virus from spreading in the animals. And is are you doing this, Stephen, in addition to your regular work, you're doing this on the side? <laughs> <laughs> right. I, th I think a lot of us are, uh, are trying to balance that. Uh, we do a lot of hantavirus work and uh, some Ebola virus studies and uh, alpha virus work, uh, but wanting to, you know, to uh, focus as much of their efforts that we can on, on coronavirus um, while we can and then try to balance the rest of the work as well. So I, I think it's a balancing act for most everybody out there. I know there's also there are also people at UNM working on genomic sequencing of the virus. Has Genomic sequencing also been one of the factors accelerating vaccine production over the last decade or so? Well, the, the, the technology that has led to the ability to rapidly sequence genomes is the reason we know as much as we do about this new virus uh, at all. Uh, so the, the, the appearance of the genome sequence, uh, which I think was in January, was what enabled all of these uh, sort of new generation vaccine efforts, in, including ours. In the absence of knowledge of the genome sequence of this virus, we would be uh, completely in the dark. In the research for our discussion, I read that all the traditional processes of vaccine development are being accelerated. How is the urgent nature of this pandemic kind of changing the way a vaccine might be created? I think that probably the best example of that is this Moderna vaccine um, that has entered clinical trial. I think the first patients uh, in, were in Seattle who were given this vaccine. Um, so this is a new type of vaccine that's based on uh, what's called mRNA. Um, and so mRNA is basically a, a sort of form of nucleic acid that codes for proteins. Um, and in this case, the mRNA encodes one of the viral proteins. Um, and there's been some very promising data using this strategy um, in animals, um, but no mRNA-based vaccines have gone into humans. And so it'll be very interesting and exciting to see um, how well uh, that vaccine works um, you know, in, in people. Um, and, and I should say that you know, all the other sort of you know, classical vaccine techniques are being applied uh, for coronavirus. So there are vaccines that are based on DNA, uh, there are vaccines that use viruses as vectors to introduce the vaccine into people. Um, there are more classical vaccine approaches that use uh, viruses that have been inactivated. I think there's a vaccine trial in China that started using that strategy. Um, and then, of course, our strategy, which is a sort of, you know, a, a another potential approach for targeting what we think are, might be critical parts of the virus. Um, so, so like I said, you know, it's, 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 I think it's heartening to see, you know, so many different and diverse efforts to go after this virus. Um, and it could be that, that all of these approaches may work. Um, and, you know, again, there are going to be issues with vaccine manufacturing um, once we find a vaccine that works. Um, and so I think having multiple avenues towards a successful vaccine is gonna be really helpful in the long run. 
you all have a lot on your plate already. There are hundreds of people working on vac this vaccine around the globe. Why, why did you feel compelled to also get involved in it? Well, I, uh, our, our platform is different than, than most others. Uh, and, uh, and so we, I, partly, I think we saw it as a challenge to, uh, uh, to our uh, technology and, and uh, can we apply our technology to rapidly respond to this? I think part of what we're concerned about is not just this pandemic, but the next one. And the world should be very concerned about the next one. And technologies like ours that have the capacity, we think, to very rapidly respond uh, uh, can in the future uh, play a really important role in, uh, in heading off uh, the kind of thing we've uh, seen spread across the globe in the last couple of months. Well, I want to thank you all for taking time out of your research to come and talk about this. My pleasure. Thanks for having us on. Thank you. Time now to turn it over to the line panelists. This week we were joined remotely by Andy Lyman, a reporter at New Mexico Political Report, as well as line regular Laura Sanchez Reve. She is an attorney, and Merritt Allen, owner of Vox Optima. And we kick things off this week talking about uh, what everybody's talking about, really, which is uh, when, how we reopen the state of New Mexico as we have seemingly done a good job of flattening the curve. A lot of developments on this fast-moving story this week. After we taped the show this week, actually, the governor came out. And as you probably know, she did extend the stay-at-home order, although she did uh, pull back some of the, the restrictions. Still no mass gatherings in New Mexico as of now. No groups, more than five people out and about in public. But some businesses are going to be allowed, if they can do curbside uh, delivery, curbside orders, they can open as of Friday, May 1st, today. Uh, that includes gun shops, although that has to be by appointment only. Golf courses also reopening, but only for golf. Can't go and get a bite to eat uh, or a drink. Can only golf, and there are rules and regulations about how all of that plays out as well. But even with that, obviously there's been a lot of debate about whether Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham is being too conservative, too cautious in this approach, and nowhere did that play out more directly than in the city of Grants this week where the mayor defied the governor's stay-at-home order and declared the city open for business. And uh, at the same time, there have been polling, public opinion polling done about the governor's response, which seems to be overwhelmingly favored by New Mexicans. So we wanted to get into this debate with the line panel now. Here's host Gene Grant. Welcome to The Line. As we navigate the strange seas of COVID-19, many experts say we're likely to have more periods of stay-at-home orders as the disease flares up. New Mexico's aggressive stance has flattened the curve in some parts of our state. And while Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham has enjoyed broad support for her actions, people are getting antsy, no doubt about that. That's where we'll start this week. Joining us live by wire, a reporter for the New Mexico Political Report, Andy Lyman is back to share his thoughts. Attorney and line regulars Laura Sanchez is back. And owner and founder of Vox Optima Public Relations, Merritt Allen, we're pleased to have her back with us as well. Merritt, let me start with you, starting with Grants. Mayor Martin Hicks 
was all in on Monday when he chose to open up the city's golf course in defiance of the governor's orders to stay at home. The rest of Grant's, not so much. Two gun stores, a pawn shop, and a strip mall reopened. I'm curious your thoughts on this. Does this indicate that the protesting out there, while it might be loud, it might be smaller than we actually might think of it in, in actual a nose count, so to speak. What, what's your sense of that? I actually think it shows that uh, we can trust individuals and business owners to show the correct discernment on whether it's appropriate or not. Mm-hmm. I, I think uh, that's the main thing. Um, Siebel is kind of in, as a county is in the middle of the state with regard to um, number of cases. They're not the lowest, they're not the highest. But when I think about places like Grant County, like Lee County, that um, have maybe a dozen cases, uh, their extraction industries have just uh, been shuttered because of global t- uh, demand sinking. Uh, I, I could... I, it, it worries me. Uh, the mayor I, is certainly um, uh, driven. He's in a populist mode right now. He's mm-hmm. got some folks behind him. Uh, I think he's overreacting. I think the state is overreacting. Uh, but I think it you know it points out if we allow things to happen on a county by county basis, people are intelligent enough to take the right precautions and do the right thing for their business. Mm-hmm. Andy, interestingly, we got word on Monday that the mayor and grants had fired the city manager. Uh, who runs the golf course there for not opening the golf course, her pushback was her employees were telling her not to open it. They were worried about, you know, of course, you know, getting COVID-19. What's been the upshot of that? What, you know, any further on that? Uh, yeah, actually, uh, she she just recently filed, uh, the city manager recently filed a lawsuit uh, uh, against the, the mayor claiming uh, under the Whistleblower Protection Act. Um, so we'll see how that goes. And then, of course, the AG's office uh, got involved so I think uh, it's a lot of probably court uh, hearings or orders or, or I don't know what next, but yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, Laura, you know, when I'm, I'm thinking about outside of grants, but just sticking with them for a quick second, when you have the governor against you, the chief of state police against you, the, uh, you know, <laughs> pretty much 62% of New Mexicans who agree that we should be staying home, how far can he honestly, or any mayor of any municipality honestly take this or at some point, did the people kind of take it in their own hands as business owners and just either open or don't open on their own? It really doesn't matter what the mayor says. Well, I think to a certain extent, we're seeing that. I think that the businesses, um, as Merritt said, some of them are using their discretion. And we see that even in other states like Dallas. Um, I think in, in Texas, where there's been a, a somewhat of a relaxation on, on establishments, there's still some business owners that are refusing to open um, at full capacity or even at some um, lesser capacity. So I do think that business owners will um, take the risk into consideration because uh, I think they, they do put their employees as well as the public at risk if they um, just defy orders altogether. But with regard to the mayor, um, you know, in addition to all the parties that you mentioned, also the attorney general and Andy mentioned this, has right. filed a petition with the Supreme Court, um, probably a writ of mandamus. I haven't actually seen it, but it basically asks for him to, um, you know, do as he's supposed to do. And, and that includes following the, the stay-at-home orders. We have to remember this is a state of emergency. We're still in a crisis situation. And, um, you know, when you see what other states are dealing with, uh, hard-hit places like New York City and their devastation, I mean, we are definitely seeing a lot less here. But even the New York Times recently had a profile of New Mexico and some of the early action that we took. And, you know, I was one of those people even that I thought it was at the time it was happening, it seemed so early compared to what was happening in other states. Mm-hmm. It seemed an overreaction. 
But now looking, you know, hindsight is 2020, but now looking back, it really was an appropriate action to take because it prevented us from getting hard hit. And even the uh, Washington State poll, or there was a, a University of Washington, I can't remember which institution, um, did a, a study and modeled that New Mexico would have uh, many, many more cases than we have now. Um, and I think that's really due in part to, um, well, it's due to the early action that we took, that the governor took, and then everybody took uh, took it very seriously. And and I think that's prevented us from, from being so hard hit. I just think it's very irresponsible for the mayor of Grants to take it upon himself to decide when to open, especially when we're seeing such high, high numbers in McKinley County and Navajo. It's really too close to Grants and it's something he should be taking much more seriously. That's right. Navajo leaders have expressed their dislike at it since everything's just so cheek to jowl that way, like like you're mentioning. Uh, Merritt, interestingly, in the polling, 62% of New Mexicans favor the governor's approach as opposed to 44% who do not favor. And that's according to public policy polling. And you know, it fairly tracks where national polls have been, not so much about the governor, but national polling, people seem like they're ready to sort of hang in there. Do you know what I mean? And they're willing to wait it out. What's your sense of it in the polling numbers you see locally for the governor? Well, I think everyone in New Mexico has figured this out and figured figured out what's right for us. Um, I'm probably overly careful um, since I have an 86-year-old uh, living with me. So um, I'm, I'm a mask, glove, hand sanitizer, wipe down my card shop once a week, do things remote. That's, that's my life. And I'm going to uh, do that for the foreseeable future. Probably not every, uh, not everybody needs, needs to do that. One thing I, I kind of appreciate is the, the moderate tone the state Republicans have taken in their opposition. They're simply asking, uh, the governor to consider case by case basis uh, uh, bases, uh, uh, based on what's happening in the County and the number of, uh, uh, number of cases, but also saying only do what's safe. Uh, that's very different, I think, from the extremists. Um, and the mayor of Grants, of course, is one of those who is also not a Republican. I would like to make that absolutely clear. He is a Democrat. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an issue, remember? So I'm not <laughs> that. It's not a partisan issue. Uh, no, but some have tried to make it one. Some have definitely uh, tried to make it one. And it's kind of a, it's a divisive issue and it follows the kind of the lines of the tribalism that centers around um, our president right now, which, um, uh, you know, is, uh, is unhelpful. That, uh, that said, I feel like everyone in New Mexico kind of gets it. There are a few um, extremists uh, on both sides. There always will be, Mm -hmm. but I, I uh, am eager. I'm eager to, um, uh, let folks decide what restrictions they want to take for themselves. My again, my biggest concern is uh, our election. Mm-hmm. That and, and the one more thing, but not delaying our election is a real mistake because we're uh, uh, diluting our democracy by uh, uh, keeping it uh, in like five, four weeks. We're going to have to leave that there. Let me tell you this: while Bernalillo County, San Juan, and McKinley counties have been hit hard by COVID nineteen. It's something of a different story in Portales and even Las Cruces. And I may have producer Matt Grubbs spoke to people running two hospitals there about what's behind them and what's yet to come. 
Continuing a conversation now that we started last week on uh, New Mexico in Focus, and this is the impact of the COVID-19 outbreak on hospitals in New Mexico. We reached out to the New Mexico Hospital Association to uh, try to get some representatives, administrators from hospitals across New Mexico, and we were fortunate enough to be joined by a guest from uh, Mountain View Regional Medical Center in Las Cruces, as well as Roosevelt General Hospital in Portales, New Mexico. Good news is, as you will hear, it sounds like for the most part, they've avoided the massive surge rush of patients, but that doesn't mean that even without a COVID-19 catastrophe or crisis in their communities, doesn't mean that their business hasn't been changed and impacted. We've talked about it a lot, but elective surgeries have pretty much been put on the back burner until we are in the clear a little bit more and that is the lifeblood, really, of hospitals, both from a work standpoint, but also from a financial standpoint. So we wanted to find out a little bit more about the impacts. You'll hear there are furloughs and and, and layoffs, not layoffs yet, but furloughs and um, creative work strategies that are being put in place to try to maintain the financial stability of these facilities in these communities. And we also talk about how they're doing in terms of PPE and the protective equipment and how this is changing their outlook and their strategy moving forward. Here is senior producer Matt Grubbs with that conversation. Well, Kay Green with Roosevelt General Hospital in Portales and Derek Cuenca with Mountain View Regional Medical Center. Thanks to you both for making time. I know you're extremely busy uh, in what is just a crazy time for us all. Thank you. Appreciate appreciate the opportunity. You're, you're welcome. It's my pleasure. <laughs> Thanks, Kay. Well, let's start with you. Um, as as we look at your part of the state, um, uh, no one is untouched by this, but it seems like um, things are going fairly well out there. Um, explain to me sort of how your hospital is adapting to what you're seeing. Sure. Um, I think we early on tried to pre- prepare as, as much as we possibly could. Uh, we're a small 24-bed community hospital in Portales. Uh, we have a four-bed ICU. So, you know, we kind of scanned what was happening and uh, tried to prepare ourselves with PPE and with uh, additional ventilators, I think, as most hospitals did. Um, we're we're very thankful that we haven't been hit yet, like many other communities have. Have you been um, pushed towards your capacity in terms of either ICU beds or ventilators? We have not, not to date. Um, in fact, early on, part of our planning was to stand up a four bed unit at the back. We just have one inpatient unit, four beds at the back, and we isolated uh, those beds to create an additional kind of an isolation area. So we created an anteroom space for donning and doffing of PPE of our, our staff. Um, and we put inpatients back there, but everyone we've suspected with COVID so far, their test has come back negative. So we've really not been pushed, but we've tested what we have operationalized in preparation. And Derek, I apologize for the sound in the background, but um, Doniana County was a little bit late to the game in terms of, uh, of its rush to, or its crush of cases. Uh, describe what's happening down there in Las Cruces. Uh, actually, uh, we, have, we do have cases here in our county. I think it's numbers up to about 80 or so. Um, 
I wouldn't say we're late to the game. We were paying attention to what was going on uh, the northern part of our state, but also around the country um, to some degree. I mean, we stood up our incident command center and our emergency operations as a hospital. Uh, and I should say that our uh, competing facility and our community also stood up their, their emergency operations protocols uh, as uh, about eight weeks ago. Uh, so very early on, before things even really, we saw anything here in Las Cruces. Um, with that, that allowed us to prepare uh, take a very proactive stance in terms of what we were doing and how we were going to plan for surge um, it, with, if it ever did happen in our in Las Cruces. We never actually, we still have not seen a surge um, in our community. Uh, I have 23 IC, ICU beds uh, with vent capability for all of them, and then we have the ability to stand up another 21 ICU beds uh, in our surge planning. Um, that already existed. We already planned for stuff like that and practice it and drill for it on a regular basis. Um, but uh, we are never, we've never come close to actually hitting our capacity for our ICU, uh, despite being the winter months where you would typically expect us to be running around 85, 90%. We typically have been running somewhere in the neighborhood about 60%. Uh, and only, we've only had three COVID patients here in our facility uh, and only two at any given time. So um, right now we have one uh, and things are pretty smooth. Uh, uh, again, I think the proactive planning and standing up our operations very early on, uh, eight weeks ago at this point, uh, it helped us prepare for that. But uh, we really just never saw the surge that uh, sort of the, the early modeling suggested. Of course, you're both still um, hospitals and medical centers. Um, when you look to order things like personal protective equipment for doctors and nurses, what are you seeing? Kay, let's start with you. We are seeing tremendous shortages through our traditional supply chains. In fact, in, in New Mexico, we have a rural hospital network, which we're a part of. And through our rural hospital network, we were able to identify an alternate chain actually through China to get uh, surgical masks and KN95 masks. And we simply couldn't get them through our traditional supply chain. So, so we've had to exercise that option twice now. We are now starting to get some supplies in through our regular chains, um, just as recent as within the past two weeks, but it was very difficult early on. Yeah, Derek, how about down in Las Cruces? Hey, we reiterate that, that along with Kay and our traditional supply chains as it related to specific PPE, uh, particularly a 95 mask, uh, those, were, those became very challenging early on. Um, we recognize that, like I said, eight weeks ago when we stood up and about two weeks into standing up, we started seeing the difficulties in getting those masks, uh, our typical orders and PAR levels, maintaining our PAR levels uh, early on. Uh, fortunately, uh, how Kay's part of a rural hospital association that helps leverage their buying power, uh, we're Mountain View's part of a larger company uh, and has about 90 hospitals. And so our companies. Been, it's been beneficial to help leverage some of that to help us maintain our PAR levels in stock. Uh, that said, uh, I'm sure Kay's done this too. We've implemented some uh, uh, policies and procedures to reduce the burn rates of those PPEs, uh, preserve them, uh, to some extent put them under lock and key to make sure that we had them available for the staff and the medical staff that need them when they need them. Uh, but to make sure that they weren't just being overly used unnecessarily. So those 
procedures that were put in place early helped us maintain the PPE and keep us from barely being negatively impacted. Okay. Um, as we all know, hospitals are businesses. Uh, I would assume this is um, or, or can impact you in a, in a couple of ways. Um, if you do have people working a lot of hours, they can get tired. Um, but also on the other side, if you don't have things like um, elective surgeries, uh, that sort of thing, um, it can sort of start to feel maybe a little bit otherworldly. What are you seeing? Uh, I, I, I think that's, you hit the nail on the head there. I mean, we, uh, I, I've been, people ask me how things are going. And I'm like, I don't think I've ever worked so hard for being so slow as a healthcare system, um, you know, we're, 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 we're constantly working and trying to mitigate and plan and, uh, and, and do processes and provide policy based on CDC, CMS guidance and what's happening. But the, the reality is we're not seeing the surge. Uh, we're not seeing a lot of patients. We're actually slower than we ever have been. Um, you know, our volumes are in our ER alone are down 45%. Uh, and both our both of our emergency rooms, uh, surgery is down 75%. Uh, our inpatient admissions are down 45%. Um, so there's a tremendous amount of uh, work that's not happening that typically happens in our healthcare system and in the community in terms of taking care of patients. Um, so with that, we're not our staff aren't necessarily overworked. Uh, they're actually asking for more work, um, and we're we're struggling to find the work to keep them busy. Uh, and keep them working. So we, we have a lot of folks that have volunteered to flex off, and we have a lot of job sharing and call, uh, job sharing roles that people are doing. Um, people have volunteered to be furloughed and, and some of those things. But uh, our revenues, our you know, our, our revenue in this essence has been cut by 45% at this point. So it's created a significant amount of economic financial struggle because our overhead's so significant, and so high. Our fixed cost as a health system is just tremendous. Um, sure, sure. Kay, I see a lot of head nodding there. Um, uh, tell me what's going on there. And also, um, how do you communicate that to the state, what you're seeing, um, while also recognizing that, you know, across the state from you in places like um, Gallup and up in Farmington, uh, the picture is quite different. Sure. Um, like Derek mentioned, we saw our workload significantly start to drop this probably the third week in March. So because there's a lag time when we collect uh, what we bill for, we didn't really see a big impact on our cash flow until the first week in April. Uh, one of the things here, we've got an attached rural health clinic, 14 provider clinic to our hospital. And we saw our visits in our rural health clinic down by about 65% by the last week in March. So we very quickly in under a week were able to stand up a telehealth program, which we had never offered through our system before. So our, our providers jumped on board. We found an inexpensive uh, technology platform to allow us to do this. And I think it's been really well received in our community and they appreciate not having to come in and expose themselves potentially. Um, like Derek said, our surgery, because we're a small rural hospital, most of what we do is not very complex and, and would be considered non-essential. So our surgery is down by about 98%. And that, that's your revenue generator if you're a hospital. So we really saw our cash on hand being rapidly depleted in the month of April. And we had work, worked really hard the past two years to get to a good financial position. And for me, that's just a positive 3% uh, margin. 
So 3% is not very much. And when you don't have that income coming in, it's depleted rapidly. Now, one of the things we did, we were very proactive and we applied for a small business loan or grant through Small Business Administration because we have less than 500 employees here. And we didn't get approved the first round, but we did get approval this week. So that was a huge weight off of my shoulders because we have been asking for employees to voluntarily furlough or give up days um, without pay. And so I think probably within the next couple of weeks, once our loan is funded, we'll be able to put everyone back to work uh, to the degree they were previously. Okay. Um, how does this change how you'll operate going forward? Um, maybe not necessarily in the near term, Kay, but um, you know, when we look to next year or after there's a vaccine, um, do you anticipate doing things differently? I do. I, I think this is creating a new norm across the board in our country, and hospitals are not excluded from that. I think we'll be much more prepared. I think we will increase our caches of things like PPE. I think we will likely order another couple of ventilators when we have the opportunity to do that. We had ordered four ventilators at the onset of COVID seeing this coming and all four of those ventilators got rerouted to other locations. So we've since got two of them in, um, but it will make us really look at how prepared we are for a pandemic in the future, because I do not think this is the last one we're going to see. Yeah, I, I think you're right. Unfortunately, Derek, you said you're part of a, a much larger medical group with 90 or so hospitals or medical centers. Um, how does this change what you'll do going forward? Uh, I, I think... I get asked, like, what does normal look like going forward? And I don't think normal is normal anymore. We're going to redefine what we look like as health systems and as hospitals. Uh, I think we're going to see you know, universal masking uh, in facilities. Uh, you know, so, um, testing, of course, uh, you know, as, as testing becomes more available, rapid testing protocols, procedures, much as we do flu tests. Um, and of course, if there is a vaccine one day, and if that the science proves out on that, it's like uh, maybe even requirements or high recommendations that our staff get the vaccine if they're going to work in a healthcare setting to protect patients and to protect you know, other staff members. Since we, since healthcare professionals are, are high are high risk for exposure to things like this, so I think I think universally it's going to change the way we look as health systems look look and feel, uh, even as even with visitation. Yeah, uh, allowing how many visitors we allow in hospitals and how many visitors we allow in patient beds uh, or in, in the facility at any given time, uh, especially if the social distancing continues to increase or it can, it continues to be part of the process in which we deal with this. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's going to change the way we look. Uh, in addition, I think that volumes aren't, uh, as health systems, I think volumes aren't necessarily going to return immediate um, for ER volume to be cut in half, essentially, uh, at least in my facility and from what I'm told from other colleagues, and they're, they're, they're experiencing the exact same thing. Um, you might see less people utilizing the emergency room and a lot more people using telemedicine. Uh, I think telemedicine is here to stay. That's going to be used considerably going forward uh, for some of the things that some people probably used the ER for in the past or, or, or urgent care settings. So. Uh, they're going to try to protect themselves by isolating, self-distancing, but still getting that medical care through technology. 
Sure, that's something that can work fairly well here in New Mexico. Um, the things that obviously can't wait are the things like heart attacks and strokes, where time is of the essence. We just have about a minute left or, or so. Can you can you quickly describe? Are you seeing people staying out of the ER too long before they come in? I think it's anecdotal at this point, but it certainly seems to feel that way when I talk to my ER providers. It's it's like this person they've been experiencing this for a couple of days when it, you know probably normally maybe they would have come in day one, not day two, or they would have come in the first hour, not the sixth hour. Uh, it, it feel it's very anecdotal right now, so we certainly haven't put any real math behind it. But uh, anecdotally, that's what I'm hearing from our ER providers that it seems that people are delaying coming to the hospital or going to see their doctor. Um, and uh, yeah, that's certainly concerning. I think some, we're gonna see some health outcomes uh, six, seven months, a year from now because of some of the delays that people are doing now, we might actually see some negative health outcomes down the road as a result of this, this situation we're in right now and the decisions patients are making. Okay, well, I wanna thank you both for making time this afternoon. Like I said, we know that you're busy, um, but it's reassuring to know that, uh, that both of your facilities are prepared and if people do have emergencies and a reason to go in, that they can go in and not be frightened. So thanks so much for your time. Thank you, man. Thank you, appreciate the time. Now we know the budgetary implications of COVID-19 are going to be vast, far-reaching, and deep in New Mexico. And we're starting to really see it come home to roost in municipalities, school districts. Uh, the city of Santa Fe announced this week furloughs. Uh, Albuquerque Public Schools is talking about the, the way they're planning for a really tough budget situation in the coming year, coming out of COVID-19. And all this is even before the special session it happens, uh, still thinking mid-June for that as lawmakers decide how to adjust the budget to deal with the loss of revenue from businesses as well as the oil and gas industry that's been really decimated by the COVID-19 outbreak. We'll hear more about that later on in the show as well. But for now, we're going to turn it back to the line panel to talk about the budgetary concerns, especially for municipalities and other government agencies. Welcome back to The Line. The pandemic and the stay-at-home orders that were close on its heels have stunned cities, counties, schools, and the state when it comes to budgeting. Santa Fe announced it's planning furloughs. APS says it's now, quote, in crisis mode for the next year's budget, and lawmakers are likely to meet in June to figure out just how ugly next year's state budget will look. The state is the big dog, certainly. What's most likely to change? Merritt Allen, I'm curious what your early thoughts are. A lot of fruit out there, as they say low-hanging well, and otherwise. <laughs> um, while I appreciate the state's response of uh, being very proactive in response to the virus and generally agree with it, the fact that we're not acting on the budget right now um, really has me nervous. And we're talking about mid-June, so two weeks before this budget's supposed to go uh, uh, into uh, into effect. I think that's a real problem. We're looking at a $2 billion um, uh, shortfall. We're going to have to uh, take some serious cuts. Uh, you know, and of course, everyone's hoping for federal aid because the federal government is literally printing money right now mm -hmm. uh, between uh, loan programs and quantitative easing. But in the state, we can't do that. We have a finite amount. We have a balanced budget amendment. So um, 
this is this is really important um, and we need to focus on where it's going to impact have the best impact we've got to pr continue providing services that's uh, that goes without saying we need to uh, preserve infrastructure because that supports the jobs particularly those lost you know everyone is talking about uh, the Permian Basin and the oil patch uh, Grant County lost a thousand more than a thousand jobs this week as uh, Chino mine furloughed just about everybody. Wow. Uh, then you've got county hospitals who are the second largest employers probably in Lee County and Grant County. They can't operate. Um, we've got a real crisis that the state's going to have to address with aid and also provide some resources to getting uh, federal aid. So uh, yes, it's, uh, this is going to be, this is going to be an ugly year and I don't think we should, I, I think we should make decisions about our budget sooner rather than later. Mm -hmm. Andy, the governor has mentioned um, one-time projects, one-time spending projects around the table. Of course, everything's going to be on the table. We'll cover raises here in a quick second too, but let's talk about projects. What, what's the likelihood of that? that? That seems to be politically perilous, it seems to me. Yeah, I think um, when it comes to the budget, I think uh, it's it may be a little premature to start uh, looking at what sort of short-term projects that might be cut, especially because it's up to the, uh, the, not up to the legislature, but you have to have an agreement sort of between the governor and the legislature to get something through. So good I think point. we just kind of have to wait to see what they present. Mm -hmm. Very good point there. Uh, Laura Sanchez-Rivea mentioned raises. This was a highly anticipated bump for teachers across statewide. And I'm seeing folks, even the APS folks are quoted, being quoted saying, look, it might not happen, honestly. Uh, should we be prepared for that? I think it would be prudent to be prepared for that. I really think that we're um, seeing some major cuts even beyond what APS has already discussed as being an issue. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're looking at probably a $2 billion shortfall. Right. Uh, you know, with all said and done, it's going to be really ugly. They're already um, having to figure out how to make the current budget work, let alone budgeting for the next year. So I think that that's a real problem. And it's hitting a lot of local communities, uh, if you look at what um, different cities are doing as well, everyone's having to look at how to roll out a plan to deal with the current um, budget shortfalls and then trying to anticipate the next budget year, which starts July 1st, right. and make things work then. So I think we're just starting to see the impacts right now. We're going to continue to see them. I sit on a charter school board where we're already anticipating you know, how are we going to meet um, expectations to finish out this budget year? We just went through the process of, of uh, approving uh, a budget this year for, I'm sorry, for next year mm -hmm. and submitting it to uh, the public education department. And I think everybody's in the same boat where they're going to have to really look at that as like, okay, that's your budget. But the reality is in June, when the legislature is likely to meet, we're probably going to be working under a whole other set of assumptions. Good point there. Uh, Merritt, obviously we got to get in Yazi Martinez. What's the upshot there for in this whole discussion about budgets? I, you know, I, I guess it, what we're, we're, we're looking at is um, everyone's going to be underserved probably in some manner than what we've been used to. Um, will the most vulnerable be vulnerable, be, vulnerable be underserved as um, that uh, as that settlement um, tried to reverse. Uh, I, and so I think when it comes to allocating what funds we have, certainly uh, the most underserved students need to be looked at first. Mm -hmm. 
Andy, I mentioned furloughs for Santa Fe. I got to think other municipalities will follow suit as the weeks go along here. But let's talk about Santa Fe here for a quick second. It's the seat of our government, of course, here in our state. It seemed to me when I was reading over what was being proposed for furloughs that the language sounded to me like, folks, we're not going back to the way it used to be. That staff reductions are going to be our new permanent you know, way of being for a while now. Did you get the same sense of that? Uh, yeah, I think that there's uh, possibly some of that uh, sort of, I wouldn't say hidden, but but sort of in there uh, to unpack, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, there's a lot of um, talking about uh, departments that are already sort of inoperable right now anyway, and sort mm-hmm. of uh, moving people around. And so I, I do think it's yet to be seen what that new normal is, which departments are going to be open for in-person sort of, uh, and, and where you need the, 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 or where you can afford to have uh, staff there. Right. That's a good point there. Hey, we're up against the clock. Thanks to our panelists for creating home studios to join us on the line. Thanks, guys, for sure. Finally, this week, we continue our series of conversations with journalists around the state who've been braving sometimes unsafe conditions to provide essential stories while we all stay at home wondering what's going on. Here's Laura Paskus with Adrian Hedden of the Carlsbad Current Argus. Time now to bring in a great friend here of the show, our correspondent, Laura Paskus. Normally, she is on the Arland beat, and she's going to be back with an environmental report next week for the show. But for the last several weeks, she's been doing something we're really excited about, which is checking in with journalists across the state who are working to cover COVID-19 and to see how it is impacting their communities and the reporting that they're working on. Great way for us to get around the state into communities we don't normally get to focus on because of the distance and see how things are going for them. This week, we are checking in with Adrian Hedden with the Carlsbad Current Argus. Of course, that's right in the center of the Permian Basin where the oil and gas industry has been hit so hard. And so Laura caught up with Adrian to talk about how things are going down there as well as whether or not social distancing is really being embraced in that corner of the state and what the outlook looks like going forward. Here's Laura. Adrian Hedden with the Carlsbad Current Argus. Thanks for joining me today. As of Wednesday, when we're talking, there are 12 confirmed cases of COVID-19 in Eddy County, I believe. Who is the virus affecting down in the southeastern part of the state? It seems like it's it's mostly been kind of the story of, of the whole thing. You know, it's been senior citizens, people that are, you know, older. Um, I think we have had some some younger people, but most of our most of our cases have been older people. The energy industry is clearly the dominant force down in that part of the state. Can you talk a little bit about how the rig count has gone down mm-hmm. and what impacts that's had on the energy industry, but also hotels and the service industry around Carlsbad? The price per barrel, you know, drops. I don't know if you guys saw on Monday down into the negative territory. It was negative $40 a barrel, which was the first time in history. So, you know, that's obviously had a big impact on production out here as, you know, the main industry. Um, as rig counts in New Mexico dropped 30 rigs in the last month. Um, so we've seen Carlsbad and I think probably in other Permian Basin cities, you know, have really got less crowded, a lot less people, a lot less cars on the on the road, trucks. As far as hotels, yeah, I was talking to some hotels and they're, you know, 25% occupancy, you know, so there's a lot less workers in town and uh, yeah, the local economy has really suffered. I wondered about that. Are there 
are there workers in the area or have they moved back home or moved back on to uh, other places or how does that work for the workforce down there? Well, um, I, I think a lot of people have probably gone back home to Texas, you know, um, you know, a lot of these companies are based in Texas. And so, you know, we know that there have been layoffs and, and, and wells have been shut in, you know, the state of New Mexico enacted that emergency rulemaking to, you know, end uh, penalties on shut in wells. So making it easier for all the companies to shut in their wells, um, I think is, you know, a good sign that, you know, the state's bracing for this to probably just get worse. And you're reporting on the economic impacts down there. You wrote that the mayor of Carlsbad said the city would continue to support residents who were laid off from the oil field and would be able to continue providing municipal services like trash pickup and sewer maintenance. What services are being cut or being talked about being cut? Well, um, the city has, has kept pretty optimistic. You know, um, the mayor said that they balanced their budget pretty well. They're obviously very dependent on gross receipt taxes and that kind of thing from, from the oil field. But uh, you know, as far as the city services, we ha we haven't seen too much, too much stop right now. I know there's been a lot more trash because people are staying home. So, you know, the the convenience center, you know, the local dumps have, have seen a lot more activity. But uh, it seems like the city is still operating pretty well. Um, you know, there's been a lot of donations from oil and gas companies. You know, Chevron, XTO Energy. They've been uh, XTO Energy gave a hundred thousand dollars to the the local school district. You know, to assist with online learning, you know, that, that transition as, as the schools have been closed. So, you know, overall, I think it's been a pretty good picture municipally, you know, for the city. You wrote in that same article that the mayor said the city plans to reconfigure its finances in the wake of the market failure. Do you have a sense on how the city is going to be able to do that or what they're thinking about moving forward? Well, it's, it's pretty similar with what's going on at the state level. You know, they're having to really look back and kind of almost reconfigure their budgets because a lot of, you know, the spending that was planned for was based on what oil was, you know, six months ago, which was, you know, pretty record, really high rig counts, that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, I think they're just having to look back and, and see where they can cut. We haven't really had, I don't think they've had um, too many budget meetings yet to do that. I know this, the state's going to probably go into a special session. I would imagine similar things would come at the city and county level too. We talked a little bit about the workforce, but I was wondering, are there workers who go back and forth between Texas and New Mexico? Um, Texas has sort of uh, less stringent um, public health orders than New Mexico does. Are there concerns about that or people talking about that? Well, locally in Carlsbad, you know, in Southeast New Mexico, you know, I wanted to say that I, I'm not sure the social distancing thing has really been embraced down here as much as in northern parts of the state, you know, going to the grocery store, they do have a limit on how many people can be in the store, but probably only a 20% or so of people are actually wearing masks and, you know, they, they get pretty, people get pretty close to each other in line, that kind of thing. So, you know, I don't know if the culture of social distancing is really has been embraced as much here in a more conservative part of the state. Yeah, I've even, I've been surprised here in Albuquerque. Uh, people seem to be social distancing, but masks don't really seem to be prevalent here yet either. Are people wearing masks down there? Yeah, some people are. You know, um, there's been efforts locally by companies, Nuclear Waste Partnership, you know, which operates the waste isolation pilot plant has got their workers all volunteering to make masks that have been shipped out to the senior centers and, and places like that. Um, and you do see people wearing them in public, but, uh, you know, in other states, I think, you know, California, places like that, I think people are doing it a lot more than, than you see here. 
And I think it was last week, um, the Carlsbad Kern Argus ran an open letter to the governor from area legislators, state legislators down there, urging the governor to loosen restrictions. And they wrote that the disease has largely been absent in the east and southeastern portions of the state, and that the only consequences of the pandemic in, in our area, they wrote, has been self-inflicted. Do you feel is that a common sentiment that's, that you're hearing down in that part of the state? Well, yeah, we've had local businesses closing down. Uh, you know, all of our restaurants are closed. Some of them are doing takeout and that kind of thing. But uh, yeah, I think people are are pretty concerned about the economic impact as far as the disease not being here as much. Um, you know, I mean, I think that comes down to testing. It seems like the more testing occurs, the more cases you have. Um, you know, we've got testing at the Carlsbad Medical Center, Artesia General Hospital, and two other Department of Health facilities here in town. But yeah, like you said, there's only been uh, 12 positives so far. I think that was four in Artesia and eight in Carlsbad. So, um, you know, I, I think the more testing, probably the more cases they're going to find. And you'd think there'd be, you know, some more urgency down here, being that we were the first county to have a death from the case or from the disease, I mean. Um, so in addition to the energy issues that we talked about, are there particular challenges or concerns down in the southeastern part of the state that are unique to that region or that you think people are talking about or thinking about in particular? I think most of what we covered already, you know, I think the oil and gas industry has, has been a big concern. Um, you know, a lot of, like I said, shut in wells, people are out of work. That's, I think, the big thing. It's an economic story more than anything. Right. Well, Adrian, thank you so much for all your great reporting and be safe and thanks for coming on the show. No, no problem. That's it for this week's episode of New Mexico in Focus, but we're already hard at work for next week's episode where we talk to Maggie Toulouse-Oliver. She is, of course, the Secretary of State and is gearing up for the primary election scheduled for June 2nd. Early voting opens soon. And, uh, of course, you remember a few weeks ago the Supreme Court ruled that it was not appropriate for the June primary to turn into an all-mail-in election, which is what Maggie Toulouse-Oliver was pushing for in terms of keeping not only voters but poll workers safe during the COVID-19 outbreak. So the backup plan is her office already has in the mail or should have in the mail soon absentee ballot applications for all registered voters in New Mexico so that they can take care of the process and participate in the democratic process that way. So she's going to talk to us all about that process. Also encourage you to go to the New Mexico and Focus Facebook, YouTube pages. She talks about an important deadline coming up May 5th around voter registration and declaring affiliation with the party, which allows you to participate in that primary process. And that's important because, as she points out in that extra conversation we had with her, that there are a lot of races that do not have candidates in both parties. So the election really boils down to this primary election. So important you have all the information you need there. In addition, correspondent Antonia Gonzalez reaches out to some young Native American folks to talk about how they are using their culture and creativity to cope and deal with this difficult COVID-19 outbreak right now. Also, our land, we talked about that. We're going to be looking at the Rio Grande and water flow issues as we head into the summer months. So a lot of great things in store. Again, so many ways to follow us, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Instagram. Of course, you can go to NewMexicoInFocus.org, see past stories, 
and uh, catch up on anything you might have missed or rewatch anything there. Reach out to us at any of those places. You can also email us at NewMexicoInFocus at nmpbs.org. We always look forward to hearing from you and encourage any story suggestions for future weeks as well. Until then, have a great weekend and stay safe and stay healthy.